This morning we're going to turn to Revelation. If you have your Bible, you want to grab it or you want to fault, uh, go on your app, we're going to read this together, but would you stay standing while we read from uh, this last book of the Bible, easy to find in a paper Bible, just go all the way to the end, and we're going to go to Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 today together. I recognize that uh, the message about the end times is something that is highly divisive and has been in the church, uh, especially in the last 100, 200 years. But let's read from this passage, and then we're going to dig in. We have two assignments from the Lord, I believe, today we want to cover. So hear this today. I'm going to be reading from the New English Translation. This is verse 1, chapter 20, towards the very end of the book of Revelation. It says this, John the Revelator, Then I saw an angel descend from heaven holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. Get that imagery. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. The imagery speaks in vivid colors. Verse 2, he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and tied him up for a thousand years. The angel then threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it so he could not deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were finished. And after these things, he must be released for a period of time. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. These had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had refused to receive his mark on their forehead or their hand. Remember, we read that last Sunday. Then they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years were finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to bring them together for battle. They are as numerous as the grains of the sand and the sea. Then they went up to the broad plain of the earth and encircled the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them completely." And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are too, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to explore two main topics today as we have been rattled by pandemic, as there are those that want to strike fear in the hearts of the saints And there are those that seek to capitalize on these moments as well for ill intent. And as we discern this, God, I pray that you would be with us today as we wrestle through these things and we learn what might be something that can bring us joy and freedom and understand that all of these things are given to encourage us, not to discourage us, not to divide us. And so, Lord, we also pray against the spirit of division and disunity, which also comes along with end times teaching. Some of that is also the work of that great serpent, the devil, even in our own hearts, even in the household of God. And so, Lord, I pray today that your word would do its work and that we would find a sense of what you desire for us as a people, along with all Christians from all times. In Jesus' name we pray, and if you're willing to, say amen. 
You can be seated in the house of God today. When I was a child, the church I became a Christian in taught a very specific end times theology. It was sort of a version of what we're going to talk about today a little bit called dispensational premillennialism. And there was a set of movies that came out in the 1970s, and some of you will know what I'm talking about even when I say that. One of them was called A Thief in the Night, and then there was The Distant Thunder, and I, th- I forget the name. There was three of them, but they were sort of like the earlier version of what later became Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. But the church I was in probably felt it was appropriate to play these for children. And I was probably 10 or 11 years old when I watched The Thief in the Night. And these movies were designed to scare you, designed to jolt you. Uh, We would say to literally sort of scare the hell out of you and into salvation. And one of the scenes early on in the first movie and it's this, with the belief of the rapture that there was a, a couple and they were in their house. And, I, and you can go and find this clip on YouTube. We're not going to play it for you this morning. But one of them is taken away and vanishes and the other is there. And the woman comes into the bathroom because she hears the, the man's razor buzzing on the sink. And rattling in the sink like this. And she is gripped with fear because he is nowhere to be found. It's a certain interpretation of the gospel in Matthew. And then the idea of this, whole idea of that there would be a rapture, there would be people taken out, it was used to scare us into salvation. You don't want to be that man. You don't want to be that person left behind. And there would be evangelistic appeals based on this, literally to try to scare you with hell that you do not want to be a part of that. And some of us, as we were raised in that over time, learned that the revelation of God in Jesus and coming to Christ does not need to be something that is motivated by the tools of the enemy, such as fear. And pastors can be sinners. We make mistakes. But there was a whole era of preaching that was designed to motivate you into the kingdom of God through fear. But when we read about who Jesus is, both in the book of Revelation, the constant repetitive themes of the crucified, slaughtered, resurrected Lamb, and when we read about the revelation of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and we read about uh, what the, uh, the author John also says in his letters and in his gospel about Jesus, the call of the kingdom of God is do not enter the gate through fear, but you enter the gate because you've been overwhelmed by the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the love of God who died for you while you were yet a sinner. And the problem is in my mind as I became a Christian and then eventually became a leader in the church is moving from this fear-based view of a vengeful monster God who's out to smash and destroy and rip apart in flames and fire with the God who dies for his creation on the cross and lets us kill him and his perfect love raises him from the dead on the third day. There was a disconnect in my mind between the monster God who looked more like human dictators, who looked more like Satan, in fact, than actually the God revealed in Jesus. And so when I come to this end times thing today, and I'm going to talk about, we have have two assignments. The first one is to talk about how do we keep the center in the center, and then we can talk about varieties of end times around. What do we do with this thousand-year period in Revelation? But I want all of this to be put in the context of 
We follow Jesus because we have been captivated by a God who dies for us. And in fact, because he is holy and all love, we can't kill love. Love comes back and rises literally, physically from the grave and speaks. And he appeared to over 500 people. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. And we live in between the time of his first appearing on earth and his second appearing. And uh, the, the resurrection is true. That changes everything. And the rest is just details. But the resurrection of the God who is love revealed in Jesus is the center of our faith. Not premillennialism, not postmillennialism, not amillennialism, not preterism, not moderate preterism, not any time of end time scheme or schemata trying to put all down. The ultimate center of our faith is the resurrected Christ will come again and it's the first fruits and the down payment of what will come for everyone, everywhere, for all time. And these are the things we build our faith on. This morning I want to, us to read something together, the NAB statement of faith regarding the end times. This is important to do, so let's put it on the screen. We'll read the summary sentence and then the rest. Would you join with me? We believe God in his own time and in his own way will bring all things to their appropriate end and establish the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. There's a wonderful saying that the Moravians are at least accredited with developing and it may go back all the way to Augustine, I don't know. But it says this, in essentials, unity... In non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, say it with me, love. Love. C.S. Lewis talks about this idea, and he's borrowed from G.K. Chesterton, and his talk about orthodoxy, or the right belief, in the ethics of Elfland. And the line usually quoted is something like this, but it reads, tradition means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy, hang with me, it's a good quote, of those who merely happen to be alive walking about. All Democrats, lowercase d, object to men being disqualified by accident of birth. Tradition the great tradition of Orthodox Christianity objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Chesterton goes on and says, democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion. Even if he is our groom, tradition asks us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he is our father. And so when we talk about the end times, the first assignment I have today is to give you a grid for understanding theology and doctrine of the church. Because one of the problems that we in free church, Baptist land, Mennonite land, Pentecostal land have is that we forget that there is a 2,000 year tradition we're standing on. And as a pastor, I find it's super important that I submit myself to the orthodox tradition of the grand church, what we call the capital T tradition. Because the church gives us tools on how to understand and read Scripture. In fact, remember the New Testament, the Scripture did not exist in the form we have it in the first part of the church. They became followers of Jesus because something changed. Jesus 
said that he, would be die, that he would be killed, that he would be crucified, and he prophesied that he would rise again. And when he was crucified, his followers deserted him for the most part, and the Christian movement was done at that point. But something happened that turned unfollowers, people who followed became unfollowers, became re-followers of Jesus that changed world history. And so we build our foundation on the risen, resurrected Jesus. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, we of all men are most miserable indeed. And so this morning, assignment number one is this. We need to have a grid for interpreting and understanding the doctrines that can divide. We lean into what is called orthodoxy. Say it with me, orthodoxy. It means right glory or right practice, right belief. Now, I'm borrowing from a guy named Justin Holcomb this morning on part of this. And he says, the teaching that best follows the Bible and best summarizes what it teaches, both the taking into account the paradoxes and the apparent contradictions to some, but what best preserves the mystery of God in the places where reason can't go, the best communicates the story of the forgiveness of the gospel. This is what we're talking about when we say orthodoxy. Now, what is opposite of orthodoxy? Heresy. Say it with me. Heresy. Heresy. Boy, in this day and age, we like to throw that word out about quite a bit. But traditionally, heresy has been understood as someone who compromises something essential and lost sight of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. Has lost sight of something essential, not peripheral, but essential a choice to deviate from the traditional teachings in favor of one's own insights. Holcomb points out, now, of course, today we like to say, oh, heretic, I'm a heretic. We laugh about it. The rebel choice is the courageous choice, but this is not what we're talking about here. Some Christians misuse this word to refer to anyone who does not agree with their particular version of the faith. Holcomb says in modern uses of the word, the word heretic usually means you're not in the club, but it's not the sort of club you'd want to be in anyway. And certainly in seasons of the church, and the medieval church went way overboard with dealing with heresy, burnings at the stake, all of the craziness there. However, today we've gone the other way, making everything heresy and therefore nothing is heresy because we've lost sight of what is orthodox and what is heretical. It's a valid concept that we need to pick up and learn again. Now, we need to understand that just because something is new doesn't mean it's heretical. New ideas or science, there's truth that we hear from the Word of God, and we find it, learn about it in new ways as human knowledge increases. The Bible itself is concerned with false doctrine. Uh, 1 Timothy talks about this a bit. and talks about retaining sound teaching. Matthew 24.4 tells us we need to be alert to deception, particularly in the end times, and that we are to guard the basics, the primary things of the gospel. In Galatians 1.9, Paul uses really strong language against distorting the primary things. In fact, he uses language of castration to talk about trying to pull in things from Old Testament law and slap it on top of Jesus. He's like, well, if you want to go back to circumcision, why don't you go all the way and cut it all off? That's Paul, not me, by the way. Paul, you're being very vulgar. If you haven't read the Bible, there's some, there's some pretty amazing things in there. Very colorful language he uses. So if we're going to have a new church together, a forward-leaning church, we need to understand something about what is in the center and what is not. What is in the center, what is not in the center, what is important but not central, and what is not really important and shouldn't even be in those first couple circles. 
In fact, if you're following along on the print outline today, there's this wonderful graph that we have, concentric circles about how do we begin to think about these things where Christians agree and disagree in love, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, love. If we look at this wonderful concentric circle, Graham, in the center of our faith is the resurrection, the life, the teachings, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross is at the center. Say it with me, the cross is at the center. Now, if we're going to have a church where it's more than just me and my opinions or you and your opinions, we've got to have something else at the center, and it needs to be Jesus. You know who's not at the center of this thing? I'm not at the center. You know who's not at the center? Andreas. Love you, brother. You're not at the center. You know who's not at the center in this? And I could go through every one of us in this room this morning. Jesus is the center. You know who else is not at the center? Some of my favorite theologians. They're not at the center. N.T. Wright, he's not at the center. Some stuff I like from R.C. Sproul, even though I'm not a neo-reform guy, he's not at the center. Simon Chan, his the books on evangelization, which we used at Pilgrim Church, Simon Chan is not at the center. Neither is Sam Chan, whose theology, we've also re- reversed that, by the way, <laughs> not at the center. David Jeremiah, some of you love him, I've learned, or John MacArthur, Neither one of them is at the center. And guess what? Every one of those men of God, oh, by there's women of God too, theologians that I enjoy. None of them are at the center. Who is at the center, church? One, two, three. That was kind of weak. Some of you are still debating it. Did he say, is he right? Or David Jeremiah is not at the center? Yes, I did, beloved of the Lord. Who's at the center, church? Jesus, amen. Praise the Lord. Point number one of my two-part message today on the end times is remember what's at the center. All followers of Jesus are called to belong to his body, the church, and we must carry out our assignment of, uh, assessment rather, of our beliefs within the historic Orthodox church tradition. And for this reason, in the innermost ring, we put those things that constitute Orthodox Christianity. Sometimes we use the word dogma. I know that dogma word is sort of funny. In fact, you'll see people with the bumper stickers making fun of this word, thinking they're really rattling Christians, you know. My, my karma ran over your dogma. Ha, 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 ha. Actually, when they say that, they're making a new dogma, which is even more hilarious, but they don't get it. But okay, karma is a dogma within those religious systems, <laughs> but... Anyway, actually, your karma is a dogma, so your dogma ran over. What? This makes no sense at all if you think about it. So whenever you see that, ask the deeper question. Learn to doubt your doubts. Karma is a dogma, so the dogma ran over the dogma. Okay, I'm confused. I'm confused. Big dog, little dog, fight at the park. I don't know. Um, But when we use the word dogma, it's the central stuff. It's the foundational stuff. It's the revelation stuff. It's the stuff when we say the Nicene Creed. When we say the Nicene Creed, it is part of the core stuff that goes all the way back. We believe in God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Of all things seen and unseen, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, eternally begotten from the Father, true God from true God, true light from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. 
orthodoxy all the way back based on creeds that we see in Philippians chapter two and even predate the written word of God. These things help us remember what is at the center. Say, Pastor, you're fired up today. Yes, I'm fired up because there's nothing worse than a church and leaders who forget what is at the center. Note what is not at the center of the creedal statements. Is there gonna be a rapture? Is there gonna be a two-stage rapture? Is there gonna be a millennium? When is the millennium gonna occur? Are the saints going to come out first? Are the saints going to judge? How, how does this work? What's going on? None of that is there because Christians have disagreed. Those are secondary issues. Now we're getting an application here. When pastors seek to divide a church on issues that Bible-believing Christians, and I'm not talking about liberal, progressive Christians here. God bless you if that's where you're at. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who have held to a high view of Scripture, authoritative, inspired, inerrant, all, all those adjectives have disagreed all the way back, then we need to not have a church where we debate, and we can debate, but we don't call people heretics or rip them down over secondary issues. Somebody ought to say amen. And in some cases, these are third-level issues. The belief that God is revealed as a relationship trinity, that Christ is fully God and fully human, that the world is created and governed by God are examples of dogma that compromise the inmost ring of this circle. The living experience of Christ, the church understanding and putting words to that and things like creeds and the summary statements regarding scripture. And then we have doctrine and doctrine and opinion. And when we talk about things like premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial, it's all going to pan out in the end, uh, all of those kinds of things. Once we get beyond Jesus is going to come again literally, visibly, and physically, and there will be a change from this age and the age of come, once we then get into the weeds on all of that, we are no longer at the center. We are in the next ring out, or even more so. In fact, even amongst the premillennial dispensationalists that I was raised in, we debated into the weeds so far about, will the rapture be right before a seven-year period of judgment? Will it be in the middle of a seven-year period of judgment, or will it be at the end of seven-year period of judgment? And there was more hair splitting and hair splitting and hair splitting and hair splitting. And you know what? There are too many people dying and going into whatever eternity is without Jesus in our city for us to lose our minds over third level doctrine or opinion. Amen? The mission of God drives us forward. I love how Jesus said this the signs of the end of the kingdom. He said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all of the ends of the earth, and then the end shall come. But the enemy would love to derail all of us to split hairs on all of those outer level doctrines. Is the vaccine the mark of the beast? That question to me tells me that we don't understand orthodoxy. That question tells me if we don't understand, have you been marked with the lamb, <laughs> you know? Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you believed and confessed? I want us to wrestle with keeping the center, the center, in order that we might focus on the mission of God. And then we can let the debate rip. I know there's fans here of various Southern Baptist teachings on the end times, so I actually looked up the Southern Baptists. And you know what? The Southern Baptists, you can be a premillennialist, you can be an amillennialist, you can be a postmillennialist, you can be a moderate preterist. Even within the Southern Baptists, they have changed over time all over the map on these things. Why? Because rightfully, guess what's above the opinion and doctrine piece of it? This is. This is above it. 
And some things are clear, and the clear things are he's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. Some things are clear. There will be a new heavens and a new earth that will descend and a recreation of this creation and the new thing together. It's going to be the ultimate church merger when the new Jerusalem and the heavens come down or the heavens and Jerusalem come down and earth come together. There will be the ultimate merger in the kingdom of God and the ultimate better together. I could not resist slipping that in there. Jesus, help us all. Amen. But this is above. You say, well, I think we should split the church over women in ministry. That's a bunch of craziness. Now, I have a definite land on one side of that issue. But I'm not going to demonize and say that you're completely outside the kingdom of God if you disagree with that. Guess what's not in the center? You know what is not in any of the ancient creeds summarizing the Bible and the gospel? None of them talk about our gender. Don't say a word about it. If it was central and that important, guess what? It would have been snuck in the creed, and we believe in the Holy Spirit who only ordains males who are married and uh, have uh, a rightly ordered house. I mean, you don't hear any of that in there. It's not there. Why? It's not central to the story. We can agree and disagree in love, even on hard issues, if we want to be a healthy, flourishing, evangelical, Jesus-centered church in South Vancouver. In fact, I love a church where we hold this higher than anyone's particular opinions on these issues. Now, we certainly can have distinctive doctrines, and that's fine, but we remember their place. But it's more joyful to be in a church where we have intellectual and spiritual honesty. The Bible-believing Christians have disagreed on some of those outer circles, and it's okay. Look at your neighbor and say, it's okay. It's okay. In fact... Point number one, going long on point number one. Not everything that was potentially wrong was even labeled heresy in the church. Only that which went after the essential elements of the center. Not disagreements or non-essential doctrines. Secondary issues in the church throughout time, if left in the secondary place, were never labeled heresy. But... When a secondary issue or third-level issue gets promoted into the primary circle, it becomes heresy. Let me say that again. If I exalt my position, whether it's dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, which I may not get to unpack today because I'm spending too much time on point one, but that's okay. One point is more than enough, especially when it's this point because it's the most important point I could possibly talk about. If I put that in the center, I become a heretic. If I say, in order to be a part of this church in the kingdom of God, you must believe in postmillennialism, then I have become a heretic because I have put something that is not in the center, at the center, which should only be Jesus and historic orthodox claims. And there are some pastors that make a killing off of putting second and third level issues at the center of their ministry. May God, may we never be a church where we tolerate that. Now, we can have strong opinions, and we can say from the word, I see these three views, but I land here, and this is why. That's okay. But if I put that doctrine in the center, I become a heretic. If I put women in ministry at the center, I become a heretic. Now, I strongly believe in an egalitarian interpretation, a conservative egalitarian interpretation of Scripture, and I will argue till I'm blue in the face for that. But at the end of the day, I don't die on that hill. 
The hill I die on is Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He was fully human, fully divine. He lived a life. He gave us teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. He will come again, literally, visibly, physically one day, and he will bring the fullness of the new creation where the heavens and the earth come together as one and the ultimate merger of all time occurs, and we will know the difference. I will die on that hill. What about the thousand years? I'm not even going to get to the thousand years. Now I'm just using it as, a, as an illustration of one particular doctrine where we can go off. If you put it at the center, it becomes heresy. You leave it in the secondary third level thing, that's fine. Christians have not agreed. Now, whew, i got to breathe. I'm fired up today. That's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'll give you this little list here. Not, er- not all arrows are equally serious. The Roman and Reformed churches have three categories. Errors directly against a fundamental article. What does that mean? Number one, error, that means something like denying the divinity or the humanity of Christ. The early church councils dealt with these things, defining and really wrestling with what does it mean that God put on flesh, dwelt among us, let us kill him, rose from the, like those things, primary stuff. God revealed as a relationship, a trinity. In fact, because I got saved in Pentecostalism, there is a small break-off group of Pentecostals that reject the trinity. Did you know that? And they have a weird doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Not the majority of Pentecostals, but this minority group within Pentecostalism rejected the Trinity because when they read the Bible, they did not see the word Trinity, but they ignored every passage that reveals God as a relationship, as a Trinity. They're heretical. They deny a primary article of Orthodox Christianity all the way back. Second type of errors, errors around a fundamental or an indirect contradiction to it. You know, Jesus said this to them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He said, you guys know the scriptures backwards and forwards, but you missed the point. In fact, in John chapter 5, he talks about this. He said, we need to understand when we read the scriptures through him. In fact, Luke writes this down in Luke 24. Jesus says, we read it through him. He is the summation of everything in the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, and the writings. Shorthand for saying everything we call Old Testament, the only Bible the early church had at that point. So we need to understand, again, it's important that there are errors around fundamental or an indirect contradiction to it, and then there's errors beyond fundamental article. Holcomb again says this, he says, heresy is not anything that does not agree with your own interpretation of Scripture. Oh, that's good. Heresy is not anything that does not agree with your own interpretation of Scripture. There are primary and secondary elements. Not everything is a pillar. Say it with me. Not everything is a pillar. So we don't call, and this is Justin Holcomb again, we don't call people heretics based on debates on the millennium. And we're in a Baptist church, so we have a strong opinion, for example, on baptism, believer's baptism, because that's the most clear teaching in Scripture. But you know what? I don't call my reformed brethren who practice child or infant baptism heretics. Now, I disagree strenuously, but you know what? Baptism by immersion. He's going to say this in a North American Baptist church and with some Southern Baptist flavoring thrown in. Baptism by immersion is not in the center. Shh. Don't tell anybody I said that. Now, you want to get baptized in the church? We baptize by immersion. We can allow for debates on it, but we've decided that that's one of those secondary doctrines that's important for our fellowship. So we put that in there. 
we argue from Scripture. But you know what it's not? Don't call your fellow Bible-believing Christian who sees the baptism of the Philippian jailer's family in Acts as a sign of the covenant, or where Paul says that baptism replaces circumcision, and circumcision in the Old Testament was performed on eight-day-year-old boys. Therefore, as a replacement, that argument is uh, infant baptism is there because it is the new sign of the covenant. And, oh, by the way, now it's for men and women, you know, because circumcision and, well, you know, okay. So as your pastor... If we're talking a whole message on baptism, I'll say, here are multiple views of baptism. Guess what? These are not in that center circle. However, we lean here and we land here in our practice because of how we read these passages. But you know what? You're not a heretic if you disagree on this. All God's people said amen. (laughs) In fact, with the Mennonite side in my life, Mennonites practice believer's baptism, but not necessarily baptism by immersion. So they agree with Baptists on believer's baptism, but don't care as much about the mode. Not all Mennonites, some Mennonites do. So what do we do with that? Well, we learn to agree and disagree in love, and we keep rolling forward on mission of God. Amen? Okay, what are some other things? We said said role of women ministry. Oh, another one is the nature of atonement. Creeds say things like this. He was suffered and crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried, rose again on the third days. Creeds allow for us to have a wide range of view of atonement. Ooh, that might get slippery here. What is atonement? Atonement, well, the Sunday school definition was how are we made at one with God through what Christ does on the cross and resurrection. Bible-believing Christians have disagreed on which one to emphasize more. If you hear me teach on the atonement, I will talk about all the atonement theories and tell you that I think they all have truth in them because every one of them can be argued from Scripture and I want to embrace all of them and hold some of them in tension. The ones I get a little more feisty about are the ones that make God seem like he's a divine child abuser. That, that stuff bothers me because that's not in Scripture. That's more of a Reformation overcorrection. <laughs> but we allow that we can see the beauty and diversity of the scriptures. We hold this, again, this is, boy, if you have a paper Bible, hold it above your head this morning. You know, like, like this is above Pastor Shell, or I, I am a doctor, the Reverend Dr. Bays, an earned, earned doctorate, by the way, not one of these honorary things. I had to do a lot of work for that. <laughs> this is above. Why do we believe in a plurality of elders and two? Why do we believe in home church? Because we're discerning the word together, not just Sunday morning. Why is home church important? Because you need to get in home church and wrestle with these questions and go deeper into the word of God and applications and disagreements in love, in love. So when we talk about the end times, it's important to understand, and I just realized I extended this series by at least one more Sunday. It was gonna wrap up next Sunday, but it'll be one more Sunday for sure. We need to understand that the specifics that whatever our favorite theologian, pastor, teacher is on those secondary items are just that, they're secondary. Let's talk about premillennial dispensationalism for, a, for an example. You know, it's changed multiple times. There's a, there are various views within that one little system, which I'll unpack next Sunday. Uh, <laughs> but there are different views within that one system that have changed over time. It's not the same thing as it was uh, 150 years ago. And in fact, some of those views didn't even exist in the early church. Think about that for a second. Historic premillennialism did, which actually is closer to what we call amillennialism today. We'll talk about that next Sunday. All God's people said amen. You don't got enough time to handle all that today. 
But let me land this plane. So-called heresy hunters say they're motivated for the concern for the faith, but many instead are making much of right belief. They minimize right belief by making everything central. Everything is not central. When you try to make everything in the center circle, then you say nothing is ultimately important. It's all just background noise. But the early church felt it very important to define and to tell us, quite frankly, that it should not all be background noise, that there are clear things in Scripture that we absolutely build our faith on. Like Paul said, again, in Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, we of all men are most miserable indeed, but Christ has risen, and it changes everything. Christ has risen, and it changes everything. That is the center. Now... I'm going to talk about the various varieties of millennialism next Sunday. But this is so important. If we're going to have a church that reaches people for Jesus and actually has a robust, biblical-centered life of exploring the Bible, we have got to hold the Bible higher. When we try to peg it down and say, well, it's absolutely this one thing, when the church has not agreed on some of those secondary things forever and ever and ever, we forget what's actually at the center. And when it comes to the last things, what's at the center is that he will come again. He will come again, literally, physically, he will come again, and there will be a disjunction, a break from what was and what is, and he will take that of the old and the new and will bring it together, and a new thing will emerge out of that. What is central is Jesus' teachings that no one knows the hour or the day. What is central when Jesus says our response is to be working, he equates us to the, the bride, and he is the bridegroom in the New Testament. And he says, keep your lamps trimmed and ready. Be about the mission of God. Don't be fighting about secondary doctrine. When he comes busy, we better not be sitting there throwing tomatoes at each other over a pre, prid, mid, or post-tribulation rapture. We better not be throwing tomatoes over each other of whether the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, you know, gifts pets in order to manifest the kingdom of God. We better not be fighting over the opinion level of doctrine. He says, be busy about the work of the kingdom of God, sharing the news that the groom is coming and he's looking for a bride, building the kingdom of God. He said, let's uh, be about expanding the kingdom of God, tearing down walls, outrageously loving. That's what we're supposed to be concerned about. If you're worked up about secondary, third level opinion, repent for the kingdom of God is near and the kingdom of God is here and it is coming fully one day. Repent. Put Jesus back at the center. If you put other things in the center, repent. Turn to him. I say it because I love you. And if we're going to reach people, you can give the Lord praise and glory. Have a John Hagee moment. Let's give him praise and glory. Amen. <laughs> He is worthy. He is worthy. If we get too worked up about those things, we get decentered and we turn into little heretics. And we need to not do that. So let me land this plane. Don't die on the wrong hill. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Learn the creeds, learn the statement of beliefs. Get the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in you. And when you hear pastors getting worked up about second and third level things, you need to ask the question, what's going on here? Are they trying to build a popular following of them or are they exalting Jesus? Are they trying to manipulate people out of fear or are they calling us to follow Jesus? I have my moments too, by the way. There's issues I get worked up about but I have to remind myself, is this the center or is this not? 
Some things we have to say, we will agree to disagree in love in order to be a bigger, healthier, stronger biblical church. Get clear on what's in the center and learn to live in tension on secondary things, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 13, stay alert. Stay alert. How do we dull ourselves in the church? We fight over carpet color. We fight over buildings. We fight over polity. We fight over last things. Last things in music are probably the most divisive things in many churches. We need to let that stuff decrease that Jesus might increase. He said, therefore, stay alert. Don't get dull because you do not know the hour or the day. Jesus promises us until he comes again, by the way, in Matthew 28, 20, that he will be with us till the end of the age when we're on mission with him. The command he gives to the disciples, in closing, I'll serve this. He says, go, therefore, and this is before he ascends into heaven, the resurrected Christ. Remember, the followers became unfollowers, became re-followers because they encountered the resurrected living Christ. And he said to them, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you until I come again, the end of the age. His power, his anointing is there when we are on his mission and we keep the primary things primary and we let the debate rip on the secondary. But we don't put all our energy into that secondary debate. We put most of our energy into that center. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray. We had a lot of things today with home church and transition updates. So I'm trying to slow my pace down. Sometimes I feel rushed when we have all the extra good stuff. But I am concerned about the church in Vancouver, and I'm concerned about our churches. If we're going to be better together, we have to continually ask these questions about, is this central? Is this not central? Is it important or not important? And we need to learn to discern those things. And me, I've been in churches where we fought about the end times. My goodness, the whole point of John's writing, the, the revelation, the apocalypse, is to encourage us not to let the enemy get a root of fear in our hearts. And we would turn something that's supposed to be encouraging into something that is fear-mongering and divisive. We are doing the works of the beast. You can study the Antichrist and misunderstand the core things of church orthodoxy and in some ways participate in the work of the Antichrist. Think about that. Mind-blowing. So don't be an Antichrist in how we talk about secondary issues. Don't be calling people heretics because they disagree with you on those things. We have a clear grid, and we are under the authority of Scripture and the capital T tradition of the Christians that have gone before are in the cloud of witnesses. We submit to that. We do not submit simply to our little novel interpretations in this era or the last 100 or 200 years. We submit to the big picture of Christianity, and that, my friends, is a foundation that will carry us through until Jesus comes again. All the preachers of this era, they will die one day unless the Lord comes in our lifetime. But the message of Jesus and the cores of the faith will be there until he comes to bring it to its fullness.
So, Father, I pray today for these people, my beloved sisters and brothers. I pray that we would not die on the wrong hills as we dig into the end times some more, because, Lord, I know that this can be divisive, even talking about multiple views. But we can because we know what's at the center, and it's you. And God, I pray that by anointed teaching and preaching and wrestling, not just here but also in home churches, that we would learn to keep the center the center. And God, we pray against the spirit of division and disunity, that ancient weapon of the enemy, enmity, strife, and gossip, slander, that are also along with the works of the flesh, of fornication. It's the fornication of our mouths, oh God. May we learn that you put those as equally in sins that can damn us. So God, we pray against division. We pray against disunity. We pray against elevating secondary things, turning them into heresies that drive us. God, we pray that there would be a breakthrough of love. And sometimes love, oh, truth and love comes together. The ultimate test of love is the fruit it bears in relationship. So God, I pray that there would be relationship in this church that is strong and that those that are seeking are welcome here and that they're not put off. God, help me not ever be, Lord, I do not want to stand before your judgment throne one day. And you say to me, I brought Sister Z or Brother X into the church that day. And they were on the edge of becoming believers. But you spent too much time talking about how license plates are the sign of the Antichrist. And they said, that's the wrong kind of foolishness. May we be fools for Christ and Christ alone. Lord, I don't want to stand before your judgment scene someday and someone came into the church and they heard believers bickering and backbiting and gossiping. So is that what it means to follow Jesus? No thanks, I'm out. Lord, I don't want that tape replayed. But Lord, I want to see the thing where we were generous with love and we kept the main thing at the center. And that in this house, the resurrected and living Christ by the Holy Spirit until you come again is what is our distinguishing mark. And may it be the case in every church in our city. So Lord, work your work today. Cast out the demons in our hearts and set us free to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.